but as I shall wait for the um, the voice to tell me to go ahead. Yes, as um, my chair was saying, it's been an interesting week, hasn't it? Um, but I'm not going to go into the ins and outs um, um, of it. Suffice to say uh, that people don't like it, do they? When um, you've got government officials um, telling you what to do when they don't do it too. So it's a, a classic example of uh, do as we say, not do as we do. Um, so this this comes, this latest story about parties at uh, number 10 comes, you know, um, uh, as the latest in a in a line of um, various sort of sleazy scandals uh, that include the um, huge <laughs> cost for redecorating the flat at uh, number eleven, at the top of number eleven, uh, that um, Boris Johnson uh, has. Um, when I think of a flat, I think of something you know more. Uh, my size in uh, this this house. I, I don't know what the hell um, the flat in Downing Street is, but I suspect it's quite palatial. Either way, um, you know when you're um, when you read the cost of the wallpaper, for example, um, it is quite um, breathtaking. So there's been that scandal. Who paid for it? And we all know that that's. Um, gone to the um, standards um, guy who said that this is, you know, find a Tory party. But that comes on also after Dominic Cummings and Barnard Castle and uh, Testing Eyes and um, Owen Patterson um, and trying to change the rules <laughs> midway. Uh, you know, if you don't like uh, uh, the committee that says that you've broken the rules, get rid of the committee and change the rules. Um, so, as I say, you know, th this latest one doesn't come as a surprise. But, yeah, people resent it. And um, given that we aren't out um, of the uh, COVID uh, pandemic, given that we're actually facing a new wave of this um, latest uh, variant with all sorts of scientists uh, leaking um, um, their demands that there's a lockdown on the 18th and Boris Johnson apparently holding out to the second and Boris Johnson facing a rebellion in the House of Commons and relying on Labour support. Um, I don't know whether they would actually lose it, but precisely some journalists are, are sort of advising the Labour Party well, if you withdraw support from um, Boris Johnson on this one and you actually vote with the right wing of the Tory party, potentially uh, you could trigger a confidence motion, uh, which they would then lose. Anyway, you've, you're into that sort of uh, uh, territory. And of course, we have um, the forthcoming um, um, Shropshire North or North Shropshire uh, a by-election, thanks to Owen Patterson, we have that coming, and uh, the opinion polls tell us, and especially with the Lib Dems um, banging on about it, that they're in a very good position to overturn a rock-solid uh, Tory uh, majority, which is an interesting one, because this isn't like Amersham and Chesham, which I think, I think, 
I might be wrong here, and if I am, please tell me I am, I think was a Remain seat. Uh, this one is a definite Brexit seat. So the fact that the Lib Dems say that they're well-placed, that tells us uh, something. Either way, we have uh, all sorts of rumblings going on um, in the Tory party, friends of uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, the uh, Chancellor, going around the tea rooms, apparently, and whispering in uh, ears saying, would you support my man uh, if he made uh, a run for um, leader of the Tory party? Um, but also, and I think this is uh, of um, some considerable significance, uh, you have uh, sections of the right wing media, you know, like the Express, uh, the Times, uh, saying that uh, it's time for Boris Johnson to go, uh, that what we need is a, a serious uh, person uh, as the uh, head of uh, the government, uh, not a clown uh, like Boris Johnson, who's good for a laugh, but clearly um, in the conditions that we're in of an economic uh, downturn, but also, as I said, uh, not only the continuation um, of the pandemic, but a new phase of the pandemic and a potential lockdown uh, coming either before Christmas or after Christmas, it's time for him uh, to go. Now, a week's a long time in politics. Um, you know, all sorts of things can happen. Um, but if you ask me, and it's uh, no big prediction, uh, just my hunch uh, is that Boris Johnson will remain uh, prime minister. I think it's very hard to get rid of uh, prime ministers. People don't want to challenge um, uh, prime ministers. Uh, and that's certainly true um, in the Tory party. And usually uh, what happens is that someone will go uh, make a challenge uh, like Michael Heseltine and uh, Margaret Thatcher, only to lose, but for someone else uh, uh, to come along. Um, either way, uh, my hunch uh, is that Boris Johnson remains uh, prime minister, but one would expect at least him to be weakened. And I think that's really what's going on uh, in terms of the right wing press uh, and uh, um, elements of the Parliamentary uh, Conservative Party. I think they're pursuing uh, their particular agenda around a whole host of different issues, such as taxation, um, by weakening uh, uh, Boris Johnson, uh, as opposed to seriously going uh, to replace uh, Boris Johnson. That's my, that's my uh, guess. And as I say, I've got no inside information. It's just that that's my feeling. Uh, about the situation. Either way, uh, what we have as a result uh, of uh, this series of uh, mishaps uh, by Boris uh, uh, Johnson is the Labour Party, uh, according to the opinion polls, way out ahead. Uh, um, the latest polls that I've seen put the Labour Party on 41%. That's the highest that the Labour Party has polled, so I'm told since 2014. The Tory party is way behind, nine points behind on 32%. Uh, the Lib Dems uh, are at 9%. That's 1% up. So no big surge 
uh, to the Lib uh, Dems. SNP, 5%, staying the same. Greens, 5%, down one. So it's the Labour Party uh, that's the main gainer uh, at uh, the present uh, uh, time. Um, I think that's significant, but it's clearly not that significant. It's significant for two reasons. One, uh, because uh, over the last few years, we've not been living in, quote, unquote, normal times. Um, we've had an economic downturn with the pandemic and we've had uh, the pandemic. Boris Johnson, of course, had a bad uh, opening pandemic, a good middle pandemic uh, with the AstraZeneca vaccination and the fantastic <laughs> technological leap uh, that we saw and the successful delivery of uh, jabs uh, to millions uh, of people. So I think the latest um, uh, cohort uh, to get their third jab, their booster jab, uh, are the um, 30 uh, year olds. So that's been a remarkable uh, success. And uh, Boris Johnson and the Tory government clearly has benefited uh, from that, but no longer. So, um, so what we're back to, uh, I think, is where we should be if these were normal times. In normal times, midterm uh, governments are always behind uh, the opposition. And what happens is that when they call uh, the general election and you start to have the political campaign and they start making their offers and they start criticizing and warning about what a terrible uh, government this opposition uh, would be, uh, then you see the parties even out and often the government party uh, not only catch up, but overtake uh, the opposition uh, party. Um, so what's been unusual um, about the present period is that in general, the Labour Party has been behind and very behind. Hence these, I, I think, daft uh, comments by some comrades on the left saying that Keir Starmer isn't interested in, um, um, you know, beating the Tories. He's not interested in winning a general election. If only he upheld the policies of uh, Jeremy Corbyn that proved so popular in 2017 and <clears throat> not so popular in 2019, then everything would be fine. Well, the point that needs to be made yet again uh, and that is that uh, it's governments that lose uh, general elections, not oppositions that win them. And so precisely in the conditions we're in now, uh, the lead that the Labour Party has, a nine uh, a percentage point lead that the Labour Party has, has got nothing to do uh, with Keir Starmer's big idea. Starmer's big idea is him becoming prime minister. He hasn't got another big idea. It's got nothing to do, uh, you know, with his cabinet reshuffle and uh, getting rid of Ed Miliband from business and uh, pushing in someone who's not going to mention the N-word, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's got everything to do uh, with the Tory government and um, with um, the sleaze and the hypocrisy. Um, um, of number 10 of um, Boris Johnson. But I would say this, that my expectation would be that if you looked across Whitehall uh, over last, the last Christmas period, it wouldn't only be 10 Downing Street uh, that would be having um, social get-togethers. 
I very much suspect uh, that that would be the situation in uh, the Treasury um, at number 11 in the Home Office uh, and throughout. That's just my uh, guess. So uh, it will be a very dangerous thing uh, for someone, uh, you know, high up uh, to throw their hat in, in the ring, because my suspicion is uh, that there will be videos, tape recordings um, of uh, party activity uh, in their offices uh, too. Um, I would say this, uh, that uh, I've got no real idea of the geography of number 10 Downing Street, except to say that it's uh, big, uh, but I do find it pretty incredible. Um, um, you know, that even if he's living next door upstairs uh, in number 11, uh, that Boris Johnson was utterly unaware of this activity. And when uh, this activity, you know, sort of came to light, uh, didn't actually investigate it uh, and was naive enough to take, uh, you know, assurances that no, nothing happened. Um, on, on face value. Um, but uh, hey, I don't think that's really the point. Um, I think it's the question of perception uh, that matters. Um, and that's the crucial thing. Okay. So, um, yeah, okay. So let's, let's just move on. Um, so I think we've done uh, the sleaze stuff. We've done the party stuff. We've done the uh, Labour Party, and the fact that now at least uh, a Labour government um, looks conceivable. Um, and we can see, I think, uh, that uh, Keir Starmer is interested in beating the Tories. Looks like it's he could uh, beat the Tories. Uh, I'm not saying that will be the result in the next general election, but at least uh, that idea uh, that Keir Starmer is useless and isn't interested in uh, winning but only interested in purging the left. I think that, sh that story should be batted aside and forgot about uh, because it's clearly always was wrong. Uh, now I think it's um, risible, uh, quite frankly. Okay, so I also thought it would be worthwhile. I, I won't spend uh, too long um, on it. And I have to say to you um, that um, I'm unaware um, of who's in the audience. So we might have comrade Tony Greenstein. I don't know. I don't know who else is in the audience, but I thought I would just comment on his um, um, article, No Liquidation, uh, which appears in this, this week's um, weekly uh, work. And I, I, won't, I don't want to spend too long um, on it. We've got a, a reply uh, commissioned um, uh, um, um, already. Uh, but just a couple of uh, uh, points. Um, first of all, I don't think uh, that um, Jackie Walker, uh, Tina Workman, um, Stan Keeble and Kevin Bean are engaging in a big lie uh, when they say that law um, is um, liquidated. And indeed, I find it quite strange in that sense that um, Comrade Greenstein about three paragraphs down, having made that accusation, actually says for the last two years, uh, law has been liquidated uh, by its steering committee. It hasn't done anything well, apart from at the Labour Party conference and apart from a picket in uh, Victoria Street outside Labour Party headquarters and other stuff like that. But after all, that was organised with Lean, Labour in Exile Network. It should also be added 
that it was also organized in conjunction with a lot of other organizations. But yeah, law did did do uh, these actions. So uh, the question is, uh, what is the significance uh, of the uh, law membership meeting on November the 26th? Now, it's true uh, that by 30 votes to 31 votes, uh, the winning motion was amended to take out uh, the idea that this new merged organization will cooperate with uh, various other left organizations in the Labour Party and outside uh, the Labour Party with the view of forming a socialist movement that would uh, look uh, towards forming a party. That was deleted, uh, and that's true, by uh, one uh, vote um, that happened. On the other hand, the successful motion um, does contain <laughs> that political perspective because it begins by saying our starting point um, is following um, um, Ken Loach and the statement that the that democracy in the Labour Party is dead, uh, that um, we've got to, um, you know, um, go out and gather the 150,000, the Corbyn movement, and we've got to have a, a perspective of uh, forming a party uh, when uh, the time is right. Um, so to me, uh, what we've got is a perspective that's outside uh, the Labour Party, which will be perfectly correct in my view, um, um, if what we were talking about was a serious party uh, perspective, um, th that would be something we would support, but we wouldn't support um, simply saying that the Labour Party is dead, that it's no longer a site for struggle. Uh, to me, that's the equivalent of saying that we should abandon uh, the trade union movement. And while um, the trade unions are affiliated in the main uh, to the Labour Party, clearly what we're dealing with is a bourgeois workers' party, uh, i.e. its politics are bourgeois, but its, its working class um, organizational base remains in the trade unions um, in terms of uh, class conscious workers at election time. Um, and also in terms of uh, still what is uh, a mass uh, membership. But as I said, in terms of uh, uh, our friend, um, comrade um, Greenstein, his view is that the fight in the Labour Party is over. Um, law um, at all intents and purposes uh, is no longer of any use. Um, and what is needed um, is basically following uh, the 150,000 in order uh, to form some sort of new uh, party separate uh, from uh, the Labour Party. And, and what's crucial there is what sort of party uh, are we talking about? I think what we're talking about is a broad front party. I don't think we're talking about a class party uh, because the comrade talks about how uh, the working class in Britain are conservative, not revolutionary. And I, I get the impression from his article uh, that that isn't um, some recent uh, development because he actually bases it, at least in this article, uh, on voting patterns uh, when it comes to the question of Brexit. Now, why uh, we have the idea uh, that if you vote for Brexit, you're a reactionary or a conservative, uh, or why you vote Remain 
and somehow you're a progressive to me is delusional. Uh, remember what we were dealing with is a referendum called by David Cameron. David Cameron was a Remainer and um, a good slice of the Tory party were Remainers and remained uh, Remainers all the way through until they were purged uh, uh, by uh, Boris Johnson. So what we were dealing with in terms of the Remain camp wasn't a working class uh, led movement. We were dealing with a bourgeois, mo bourgeois led uh, uh, movement, including sections of uh, big business. But the same was true on the other side. Um, so, yeah, you had gained sections of business. Uh, you had bourgeois politicians. And, yeah, you had deeply reactionary politicians like uh, Nigel Farage. Um, but basically what you had is the split of all classes. Um, around the Brexit question, which is why we uh, argued uh, that uh, uh, in terms of the working class, it needs its own agenda and it shouldn't have allowed itself uh, to be divided um, on this question um, uh, by accepting the validity um, of a referendum uh, called by David Cameron uh, to get rid of uh, the Brexit party. That was his attempt to deal with the Brexit uh, uh, party. In our view, that was a mistake. And if the Labour Party had said, we are not participating um, in this um, referendum, we're not uh, going to take uh, sides that we don't accept referendums, just like the Labour Party did historically, you know, going back uh, to Harold Wilson. Uh, um, he was the one uh, that broke uh, the Labour Party's uh, consensus uh, around opposition uh, to referendums. If you look at Attlee, if you go back to Ramsay MacDonald and back to the origins of the Labour Party and uh, the, the background in the Second International, the basic uh, approach was referendums are a tool of reaction and we reject them. Uh, this is a way of dividing uh, the working class. And that's what happened. And we shouldn't be surprised when, under the leadership of uh, Jeremy Corbyn, we had uh, Keir Starmer steering the Labour Party to a Remain uh, position, people who'd voted Brexit didn't vote Labour. That shouldn't surprise us uh, that they, they went over uh, to the Tories. We all know the story uh, of the Red Wall. So we don't take uh, the view uh, that, uh, um, you know, Remain is progressive. Brexit is um, reactionary. In our view, uh, the whole issue uh, was uh, something that divided the working class and shouldn't have divided uh, the working class. The, the working class needed its own foreign policy, not one version of bourgeois politics as opposed to another version of bourgeois politics. In other words, what I'm trying to say is it does seem to me that what we've got um, is a call for some sort of red-green, a rainbow a party, a people's a party. That seems to be uh, what is being uh, advocated. Um, either way, uh, we oppose uh, broad front parties. Why? Because actually what broad front parties are all about, uh, and that is true with popular fronts uh, in general, is it's the right that sets the political uh, agenda. It's the right that says, if you don't accept uh, our 
uh, uh, political uh, platform, we walk. And just I can illustrate that just by looking at a mini popular front, which was called Respect, where we had uh, the SWP uh, and uh, people in the International Socialist Group, uh, people like Alan Thornett, who couldn't raise uh, the principle of a woman's right to choose to have an abortion because they thought that might upset the Muslim uh, Brotherhood, uh, the MAB, the Muslim Association uh, of Britain. And a whole series of other uh, issues uh, were treated in the same way. So when we put a motion forward uh, that respect should stand for republicanism, we actually had SWP speakers getting up and saying, well, that would put off royalists, wouldn't it? And you go, yes, I think it, I think it might. <laughs> I think it might put off uh, royalists. But the point is there that what you had uh, is a broad uh, coalition and it was the right uh, which set uh, the political uh, agenda. And that is always the case uh, um, in these broad front uh, formations. So what we have is uh, comrades on the left telling us that this is a clever move because this will provide them uh, with a sea in which to swim in. But the reality is what happens to these comrades is that they view people who raise awkward questions such as class politics, such as socialism, such as the abolition uh, of the standing army and uh, the arming uh, of uh, uh, the population. Uh, they view these things as uh, prov provocations, uh, that these, these uh, voices should be silenced, that these politics precisely will wreck uh, the organization. And, and that's absolutely true. They will wreck such an organization. So either this organization has to clamp down on the left uh, or it splits. And that's the history of these organizations. And against that, what we put forward uh, is the idea of a mass communist party, uh, but a mass communist party beginning perhaps uh, with the unity of uh, various existing left groups that would necessitate the overthrow of bureaucratic centralism. But why are we putting forward that perspective? Because that is the most realistic route uh, to the working class forming itself um, into a party and putting itself in a position where it can overthrow capitalism and would have a hope of uh, its regime surviving uh, the attempts at counter-revolution. That if you have something else, the, the very distinct chances are uh, that what you would be is drowned um, in counter-revolution. So for example, uh, imagine, and I never did uh, seriously, although you have to take it as at least uh, outside uh, possibility, uh, that uh, Corbyn had led the Labour Party to victory in 2017. Well, first of all, you've got to get over the barrier of the parliamentary Labour Party, so we get rid of that one. Then you've got to imagine that the, the monarch would really call Jeremy Corbyn uh, to form a government. And then you've got to imagine that the army and the uh, chiefs of staff would stand for it and wouldn't organize a mutiny. Then you've got to go with the idea that the judges wouldn't interfere and wouldn't do anything about it. And then you've got to uh, um, say that uh, Mike Pompeo didn't really mean it or couldn't deliver it when he talked about pushback. But the point would be 
that what would happen, of course, uh, to such a government uh, is almost certainly it would disintegrate way, way before that, if it was at all possible uh, in the first place. So instead of actually being a step in the direction to socialism, what we have is the working class thrown back. What we have is repression. And I, I put that forward to Conway's on the left. And they said, well, under those circumstances, uh, uh, Jack, there would be a revolution. And I simply turned around and said, well, what army regiments have you got on side? What armed units have you got on side? I mean, how are you going to carry out a revolution? Um, no, this is just um, silly talk. So we put forward the idea uh, of a communist party, not because of some sort of sectarian obsession, but we put forward the idea of a communist party because it's historically necessary that without such a party, uh, we cannot pursue uh, uh, successfully uh, the fight uh, for socialism. Uh, the comrade Greenstein says, well, you've tried it and it's never succeeded. Well, that's absolutely true. But then uh, we're socialists and nor's the fight for socialism uh, succeeded. So what we have to do is not argue who succeeded and who hasn't, because none of us have succeeded. What we've got to look at is what is most likely uh, to succeed. And my argument is a mass communist party, a mass communist party where there's democracy, where there's open debate, uh, where you can form factions. That uh, should be uh, just, uh, you know, uh, a basic uh, right in uh, such a party, but a party that goes out uh, to organize uh, the mass of the working class. Well, it's been done. It was done uh, uh, in the Second International. We view these parties uh, uh, as an example of mass communist parties. So German social democracy, in my view, was a mass communist party. So was the RSDLP, the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party. It was a mass communist party. And it's that sort of organisation which we think is achievable, uh, uh, but is also necessary if our struggle for socialism uh, is ever uh, to succeed. Okay, let's move on. Well, I looked at the advert uh, for this week's um, um, online communist forum, and I thought, yeah, Christmas. And of course, Christmas isn't only about last year's parties at number 10 and number 11 and uh, all the rest of it. It's also about people having fun. And I'm just reminded in, in that sense of, because um, it got buried in the news, didn't it? of uh, the government's new 10-year policy on drugs. And the last thing that the government wants to be charged with is being soft on drugs. So although you have some concessions to rationality when it comes to things like crack, uh, cocaine, and uh, heroin, uh, that people uh, should, that, that, that this should be viewed uh, as uh, a question of treatment and rehabilitation and uh, alternative drugs uh, should be supplied. That's a sort of uh, rational move. It has to go hand in hand uh, with showing how tough uh, uh, the government is. So what we have is this whole new policy being announced. Uh, I listen to the radio. I don't watch uh, television. Um, not boasting about it. I'm just saying that I have to imagine uh, the pictures, but on the radio, what we had is that this policy being announced 
as the police were battering down some drug dealer's uh, door uh, with the police shouting, police, don't move, and all the rest of it. So this is for the, the Daily Mail. This is for The Sun. Uh, this shows that uh, the, the, the new drugs policy will be a continuation of the war on drugs and that the government hasn't gone soft. And to prove it, what they are saying is that when it comes to middle class people who take cocaine, uh, what they're going to do if you're found guilty is confiscate your driving license and your passport, which is a jolly good thing to do, isn't it? That really is going to help people. And that's really going to deter people, isn't it? No, it's not. And so we also have the story, which is no surprise to me, uh, that in the um, Houses of Parliament, where apparently, let me look it up, there are 12 sets of toilets, um, some bright spark who went around with a testing uh, kit found uh, traces of cocaine in 11 out of 12 of them. Uh, well, I don't know how many people work in the Houses of Parliament as a throwaway figure. I mean, I've got no idea. 5,000, 10,000. Uh, I would be amazed if you didn't find evidence of drug taking. We're talking about illegal drugs. We're not talking about the bars that remain open 24 hours a day uh, uh, in uh, Parliament. The fact of the matter is uh, someone did something similar uh, to the Tory party conference way back. Uh, I do recall it in Brighton. I don't know what year, but went round the Grand Hotel and uh, other places that the Tories had booked out. And of course, what did they find in the toilets? Uh, there you are, traces of uh, cocaine. This is a drug of um, middle class choice, we're told. And certainly what I understand purely anecdotally um, uh, is that in the city, um, every Friday, um, not only is va vast quantities of uh, wine and beer and champagne consumed, especially when the bonuses uh, uh, come through, so, so is vast quantities of uh, uh, cocaine uh, consumed. Um, okay, so just turning um, um, to Socialist Worker this week, I just thought I'd uh, see what they have to say about this question. And they say, well, what, what really the government should be doing is treating drug taking as a health question. Well, I would agree with them. Maybe, you know, people are addicted. People can become addicted, as I understand it, to heroin. As I understand it as well, again, this is anecdotal. People can make the decision, say, I'm just going to quit. Uh, and as an ex-smoker, uh, I know how hard that is, but uh, I can remember just taking the decision where I'm not going to smoke. Um, anymore. And I know people that have had a long term heroin habit and have just taken that decision. But I also know people sometimes and often need help. And uh, yeah, they ought to be given that help um, and they shouldn't be thrown in prison. They shouldn't be uh, criminalized. Um, and I'm all in favor uh, of that. On the other hand, you know, if I went along um, after the million pound bonuses had been handed out in the city, and I went to the bars and the restaurants uh, of the Square Mile, and I went in there and said, um, I'm from the government. Um, I'm here to help you with your cocaine um, habit. I just wonder how people would react. I mean, are they going to react and say, well, what have you got to give us? I mean, what have you got available? How much uh, are you charged? I suspect that would be the reaction rather than people turning around and say, oh, yeah, I've got this terrible 
uh, habit every Friday. I like to have fun. And that's what the SWP don't get when it comes to so many different things. They think, for example, we've seen that, that when it comes to football, the only thing they can see is profit, uh, that the people running these clubs uh, are only in it uh, for the money. Well, they don't really get the idea uh, that this is a, a form of luxury uh, consumption, uh, just as cocaine is a form of uh, luxury uh, consumption. And drugs are a form of luxury uh, consumption uh, that clearly has permeated down to the masses. So, you know, what used to be a pretty rarefied drug scene, as I understand it, in the 1950s has become considerably widened. And you're dealing with illegal drugs and therefore the price is high, uh, just like with alcohol, uh, that the price uh, is high. From our angle, because we understand that while some people might have a health issue with um, alcohol or tobacco or cocaine um, or, or heroin, but we also understand that people like to have fun and that what we would advocate is the legalization of all drugs and quality control um, over all drugs. So you know what you're taking. When I drink um, a sip of whiskey, I know that it's strong, right? When I drink beer, I need to know, is this a weak beer? Is it a strong beer? Because I limit myself uh, when it comes to strong beer. I'll limit myself even when it comes to weak beer, but I know what I'm drinking. I know what I'm used to. And that ought to be the case with all sorts of drugs. And I'll just finish with this um, on drugs uh, that uh, in, in terms of um, my paper down here, the Evening Standard, London's uh, uh, paper, we had a story about the police busting in to a drug dealer's um, house again and uh, seizing a load of flour. Um, that what these people were selling as cocaine uh, was actually baking, <laughs> baking flour. Now, I personally, I don't know enough about the drug culture. I would have thought you would uh, try it. Uh, I don't know. Uh, either way, that's what they were selling. Um, so quality control, uh, that is important from our point of view so that people can have fun, uh, but fun safely, because often it isn't um <laughs> baking powder uh, that people are selling uh, sometimes they can be selling drugs that are got impurities in in them uh, and can prove fatal uh so we we don't want that but we recognize that drugs uh, are as old as human culture I and mean, that's our guess it would go back hundreds of thousands of years human beings have drunk sniffed smoked um all the rest of it and got high uh, sometimes they get high uh, for religious reasons. Sometimes they get re, uh, high uh, because they want a party. Okay, moving on. Hopefully this will be a quick one. I need to limit my time. So 20 minutes, I'll give myself 20 more minutes. Um, Mark Meadows, former chief of staff of Trump and his um, PowerPoint plan for the Trump coup. Well, I won't bore you with the details. Uh, suffice to say, the idea that they were going to sell uh, to Congress after the coup is that this election had been seized hold of uh, by China and uh, Venezuela 
<laughs> who'd fixed the voting machines and had fixed the um, um, online voting. I don't know how, doesn't matter. Uh, but Trump basically won it. And as part of this uh, coup plan, of course, we all know it, don't we? Uh, that Mike Pence wasn't going to recognize um, various Democrat electors. Remember, the American presidential election isn't direct, it's indirect. So it's you're electing electors. So when you vote Trump, in reality, you're voting for an elector. So Mike Trump, uh, Mike Trump, Mike Pence, the vice president, uh, was meant to preside over this um, uh, session and basically say, well, look, you're barred, you're barred, you're barred. And there was even proposals in this document uh, to recount um, all these votes one by one and put them each one up on the internet. So you would look at these millions and millions of different items. Meanwhile, they would have declared a national um, security emergency. Um, well, my own version of it is that this is important, uh, that the very fact that these people, you know, um, like the former chief of staff, people like Steve Bannon, uh, people like Rudy Giuliani, uh, people like John Eastman were over the road in some hotel plotting uh, this coup. And you had this uh, mob uh, that stormed uh, uh, Congress. This shows you, um, you know, uh, Trump, yeah, uh, trying to overthrow uh, the election. He tried using the courts. And remember, in the run up uh, to that election, he'd been doing everything he could to involve the army uh, in domestic politics. But what was noticeable all the way through to the very end um, is the army turning around and so we don't want to be involved. And so you had uh, statements by uh, former chiefs of staff um, and as well as the acting uh, chief of staff of the army, but also um, um, all sorts of uh, instructions going out uh, that you've got, i.e. the general uh, in charge uh, of the armed forces, basically saying, look, you've got to obey me, not the fascists. And he wasn't talking about the people storming uh, the Capitol. He was talking about Trump's, Trump's team. OK, so in my version, um, if this had happened and a national state of emergency had been declared and Mike Pence had done the bidding of um, uh, Donald Trump and the... Um, the mob uh, that was storming in, um, if that had happened, what then happens is the CIA or the army, uh, yeah, declare their state of emergency and arrest the government, arrest uh, the chief of staff. Uh, what are they, what are these, what, head, head of the armed forces, sorry, excuse me, arrest Trump, basically, and uh, take him out, and I would have thought confine him to the funny farm. Um, of course, we have some comrades on the left saying that this wasn't a coup attempt. It was more like uh, the um, beer hall putsch. <laughs> Crazy people. Um, the word putsch means coup. Yes, the beer hall putsch failed, but it was a coup attempt. It was not only headed by Hitler and the Nazi party. Uh, we also had the former uh, leader of the German army involved. And basically the idea is if you put him at the head of your uh, column, uh, the army, uh, the police force, whoever it was, ain't going to shoot you. Well, they did. They did do that in uh, Bavaria. I think 18 people were killed. Either way, the Beer Hall Putsch 
was a putsch. It was a failed putsch. January the 6th was a coup attempt. It was a failed coup uh, attempt. But clearly that was in the mind um, of uh, the plotters. And of course, what's significant about it is what do the Democrats then do? What do the Democrats do when, for example, um, if things go badly in 2022 in the midterm elections and they lose control of the, of the House of Representatives and they lose control of the Senate? And remember, the Senate is 50-50 with the vice president at the moment giving uh, the Democrats uh, the swing vote. What happens then? What happens in 2024 when Trump runs? Do they stop him running? If he wins, what do they then do? Uh, do they allow him uh, into the White House after this uh, attempted coup, um, you know, in, on January the 6th? I don't know, uh, but it shows you the instability of uh, American, <laughs> what we'll call democracy. And it also shows you, I think, that, you know, Biden's democracy conference um, you know, what a sham that is. It's not only um, looking at all the unsavory regimes that are there. Israel, a democracy, a democracy. Come on. Uh, you know, uh, not if you're a Palestinian and certainly not if you're a Palestinian uh, living in the occupied uh, territories. Israel is no a democracy. But America, uh, is it a democracy? Well, I'd certainly say uh, it's uh, imperfect democracy, or to quote Gandhi when he was asked about British civilization, I think he turned around and said, it would be a good idea. So democracy in America, in my view, would be a good idea. And to have democracy in America, one of the first things you would do is get rid of the president, which is a Bonapartist position. You would get rid of the Senate, which is anti-democratic, and you'd get rid of the Supreme uh, court, and then you might start to be able to talk about America uh, being a democracy. Uh, but that would be your first step. Um, anyway, let's move on. Okay, just a couple of other items now. Socialist worker um, and other left-wing papers, I presume because uh, Christmas is coming and they're shutting down just like we are. Uh, last edition uh, coming out next Thursday. We're back in business on the 6th, but what we've got on the 25th of December is not only in the West, uh, Christmas Day. So the Western church celebrates the birth of uh, Jesus Christ um, on December the 25th. But we also have the 30th anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union was dissolved um, 30 years ago, uh, come um, December the 25th. And, and a lot of people are writing their, um, their articles um, on the question. And having read a few of them, including um, Socialist Worker, I have to say that what it shows you is that since 1991, I, I can't say that I, I've come across any left group that has done any thinking. And you would have thought it was an obligation, given their analysis um, of the Soviet Union did not conform to what happened when it collapsed. 
that what we had is the disproving of uh, the um, theories um, of the left. And instead of going away, there's nothing wrong with being wrong. We're all wrong lots of the time. But what, what you're meant to do uh, with Marxism <laughs> as a human being, you make a mistake, you think about it, and you say, we're not going to make that mistake uh, again. But what we have on the left, uh, uh, I think, is sort of ossification, uh, which is a typical um, sort of mark of a sect. And so what we have with the Socialist Workers' Party is them boasting about uh, the headline in Socialist Worker, which was, quote, unquote, communism has collapsed. Now the fight for real socialism. And of course, what they thought is that having seen the Soviet Union collapse, the working class would step forward. And uh, after um, um, what they would call the Stalinist bureaucracy um, had been sent packing, uh, now on the agenda um, was um, genuine working class power. And instead of that, what we saw is a massive economic regression. Um, life expectancy crashed. Living standards went down and wide sections of um, the mafiosa uh, and um, the younger um, members of the, uh, the, the top of uh, the bureaucracy transformed themselves into uh, a particular version of uh, capitalism. So we have a, a peculiar um, uh, capitalism um, in Russia. Uh, today, not an imperialist uh, capitalism, um, but nonetheless, some sort of uh, capitalism. Where's the working class um, at the moment? Unfortunately, um, it's not visible uh, as an alternative ruling class. Now, I just it's just worthwhile reminding ourselves uh, about uh, the SWP's um, so-called theory of, of state capitalism. Um, originally um, formulated, of course, by uh, Tony Cliff. There are other versions of state capitalism, of course, you know, Hilferding, um, Karl Korsky, but others, others, others. But Tony Cliff, his version of it was uh, that there are, there's no capitalism inside the Soviet Union. And that's clearly the case. Uh, there was no commodity production. Uh, there was no extraction of what Marxists call uh, surplus uh, value. These categories um, didn't apply. His theory relied on uh, the Soviet Union uh, as one big factory. This is his, his sort of, um, you know, uh, thinking, being in competition uh, with what he would call other imperialist powers. And it was the outside contradictions, external contradictions uh, that made the Soviet Union move uh, towards accumulation and accumulation of a particular sort. But what he said also, which is worthwhile bearing in mind, is that the Soviet Union, because it was a monopoly on a huge, huge level, uh, that this was um, capitalism. This was, this was bureaucratic state capitalism, which was the last phase of capitalism. So it's the highest stage of capitalism. So he corrected Lenin when Lenin said imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism, Tony Cliff said, no, 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 it's bureaucratic state capitalism that's the highest stage uh, of capitalism. Which, in other words, what you've got is a thesis, and that's what he said, the only way to go uh, is towards genuine socialism.
this was Tony Cliff's theory. But of course, we didn't get that, did we? We didn't get uh, the collapse of communism and then uh, the struggle for um, genuine, um, real socialism, uh, as they said in Socialist Worker. So what's Socialist Worker saying uh, today? Basically, they're saying we were right. Well, no, comrades, you were wrong. And uh, what we get is uh, an impressionistic description of the Soviet Union. We all know that in the 1970s, it stagnated. And in the 1990s, late, 18, uh, late uh, 1980s, 1990, it uh, nosedived no, uh, in, into collapse. But, but why did it do that? Why did it stagnate? Uh, no explanation. Uh, no laws uh, of motion. What I would say is that the Soviet Union wasn't a mode of reproduction. What it was able to do is organize in a military way, that's absolutely right, all resources within the country and was able to channel that into accumulation. But it could only carry out one um, round of accumulation, basically. The working class, because it exercised negative control, I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of it, basically precluded um, extended um, uh, reproduction. But I would say this, I just wanted to add this one in. It was a, a, a delusion uh, that the Soviet Union should, could ever catch up by itself um, with the advanced capitalist uh, countries. And that was a delusion uh, that Lenin had, um, that Stalin uh, put into practice with the first five-year plan. Remember, Lenin um, presided over, remember the slogan, um, Soviets plus um, whatever it was, um, electricity equals communism. And they did preside over the electrification of the country. It didn't produce communism, uh, but they did uh, raise uh, the country um, up. Um, but yes, it was always delusional uh, that uh, an isolated Soviet Union could catch up and overtake the West. And that was the um, conceit um, of the first five-year plan. And I think that remains something that the bureaucracy had deeply internalized, genuinely believed that they could achieve. Tell when? Maybe the late 60s, but not in the 1970s. And so I'm reminded of a story, and I think it's true, that in the 1970s, a group of workers got together and um, republished and circulated the Khrushchev um, third program of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which was agreed in 1961, which predicted that the Soviet Union would catch up to the United States by 1970 and by 1980, uh, would be um, basically enacting um, communist uh, measures. It would be entering uh, full, fully developed communism. That was, and of course, they got arrested um, uh, because, of course, um, it was obvious to everybody uh, that the Soviet Union hadn't caught up to the United States, uh, let alone was on the threshold uh, of introducing uh, communism. So the 1961 uh, program was viewed as an embarrassment. Indeed, circulation of it was viewed as an act of subversion. But of course, it wasn't only uh, the, uh, the SWP 
uh, comrades that got it wrong. Uh, it was also the Trotskyist uh, comrades that also got it wrong. Um, I can remember debates with uh, the Trotskyist comrades, such as, for example, the Spartacist League, that when we warned uh, that with Gorbachev, it was obvious uh, that what they were embarked on is some sort of course of um, um, re-establishing capitalism, we were told that you can't put the baby back into the womb. Well, I agree uh, that you can't put the baby back into the womb. But what you can do is overthrow um, a particular social formation. And what was not going to happen, I wanted it to happen, I called for it to happen. But what seemed to be uh, on the agenda wasn't a political revolution, as we called for. Uh, but yeah, the restoration of some sort of capitalism. And what we said, as opposed to... Um, kind of his first name, but Rhys Mogg, who wasn't the leader of the house, but was the editor of the Times, it was his dad, was saying that what you can have in the Soviet Union is uh, Swedish levels of um, social security and Canadian levels of living standards. And we said, no, that's a lie. Uh, what you're going to get in um, the Soviet Union, uh, if capitalism is restored, will be something along the lines of a Brazil, a um, South American uh, style, uh, or a Turkey, uh, something like that. And we were wrong. Um, you didn't get that. You got something far, far worse. I think that what you had is something like the biggest drop in life expectancy ever recorded in modern history. I think that's, that's correct. A social disaster uh, is what happened and of course what you had is capitalist triumphalism and you didn't have what for example and he wasn't unique uh what um peter taff uh the great um seer of um spew uh, said you didn't have the red 1990s uh far from it what you had is a period of reaction and uh you had a loss of faith um in uh, the working class and the socialist uh, project Lastly, and um, I've given myself very little time. I'll try to finish at uh, after one hour. I do want to comment on the uh, Dan Lazar article. I'm sure Dan is a participant, but he might not be. Uh, I don't know. I don't know uh, enough about the DSA, the Democratic Socialists in America, except to say that if I was in America, I wouldn't hesitate myself uh, to be a member. That doesn't mean I sign up as a fan of AOC or Bernie Sanders, um, or that uh, I want that uh, link with the DSA and um, the Democrats to remain. Uh, I would have um, fought uh, for the expulsion of, um, what's his name, Jamal Bowman, um, anyone who voted um, um, for US aid, military aid, uh, to Israel, I don't think should be in a socialist organization. I agree, I agree, I agree. But I would be in that socialist organization doing that fight. Okay, so that's a, a difference uh, that I have with, um, with Daniel. But when it comes to um, the boycott, disinvestment and sanctions, um, I profoundly uh, disagree uh, with Daniel on, on this one. Look, the idea um, of uh, boycotts uh, 
it's about protest politics. It's about symbolism. Uh, we are not the ruling class. We are not able to impose a boycott at the level of a, a siege of, of siege warfare. So we're not British imperialism surrounding Germany. Uh, we're not international imperialism imposing sanctions on uh, China or uh, a Soviet Union. We're not in the position of where we can kill off uh, the Israeli working class. <laughs> it's just nonsense. What we are in is exactly the same sort of position vis-a-vis um, -vis South Africa. Um, no one, <laughs> at least in my view, who's sane believes that um, boycotts uh, by people like me of South African grapes or boycotts by dockers um, in Britain or America um, or shop workers in Ireland uh, brought down apartheid. No, it didn't. It didn't, didn't make any difference uh, when, it come, when it came to the economy uh, of South Africa. And it certainly didn't uh, lead to, um, you know, the working class in South Africa being put out on, on the streets and disempowered. Quite the opposite. What this was a chance of people to do is to, to show their solidarity with the masses uh, in South Africa and show their profound, profound um, opposition to the apartheid regime and those that went along with it um, 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 in the West, that South Africa clearly was an ally of uh, international uh, imperialism. So in my view, um, what we're dealing with, uh, with the BDS uh, uh, question isn't the equivalent of um, Saudi Arabia, but I'm not against, you know, under certain circumstances, um, if we are strong enough, um, if we can force, for example, a situation of where Britain, uh, such was the militancy of its working class movement and the organization of it, uh, that we refuse uh, to deliver um, fighter aircraft or missiles uh, to Saudi Arabia, that we, we wouldn't allow the planes to take off, um, that the flight controllers uh, wouldn't allow these planes to move or whatever it happens to be, or the workers in the factories. So uh, we're not going to produce uh, uh, these goods. We would do it because we'd be on the edge of power. But OK, what are we dealing with Israel? We're dealing with an ongoing colonial question, which is pretty unique um, in the world. I, 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 you know, I don't know another example. Um, and what we're dealing with inevitably, because it's ongoing, is mass opposition from the colonized. That, believe it or not, when someone comes along and takes your land and deprives you of rights, people object and they fight back and they fight back with whatever they have available uh, to them. And so we understand resistance and we approve of uh, resistance. That doesn't mean we've signed up to Hamas or for that matter, Al Fatah or the PLO or, or anybody else, but we recognize the right of people to resist. Well, the fact of the matter is the balance of forces, both within Israel proper and in greater Israel, i.e. Israel plus uh, the occupied uh, territories, is so against uh, the oppressed, right, that they cannot effectively uh, fight back. And that's precisely why they've turned around to people and say, as a gesture, uh, stand in solidarity 
uh, with us. And that's why I certainly um, welcome, um, you know, uh, people who call for sanctions against Israel, who fight in student unions or universities or workplaces, uh, local councils, uh, to boycott, disinvest um, from Israel. And it's also notable, of course, that not only are we dealing with an ongoing colonial settler project, we're also dealing with the United States' most important strategic asset uh, in the Middle East, far more important uh, than Saudi Arabia in spite of its oil. Why? Because the population of Israel proper, i.e. the Jewish Israeli population, the Hebrew uh, nation, these people are loyal to the United States uh, and the alliance with the United States. I don't think you could say that uh, about the, the, uh, the masses uh, in Saudi Arabia. I don't know what they think, but I doubt they think that way. So we're also dealing with a situation of where the Tory government uh, is trying to outlaw um, people standing in solidarity with Palestine in Britain around the BDS question. We've had it uh, banned in various European countries and in the Labour Party. What we've had, and I think, I think it is unprecedented, comrades, is an unprecedented purge of the left around allegations of anti-Semitism, which is in, in, includes BDS in it. So when at the Labour Party conference, we have uh, comrades, you know, in the hall under Starmer, but crucial, well, you know, most, most impressively under Corbyn, right, waving Palestinian flags, right? And yes, calling uh, for a boycott uh, of Israel. I welcome that. And I would expect somehow uh, that the masses in Palestine uh, welcome that too. And I'll finish with this one. The, the working class movement in uh, Britain has had a, you know, a mixed record. Um, that's certainly true. Sometimes it stood with imperialism um, and British colonialism and the British Empire and the Labour Party is an example um, of it. But one thing that you can say about the British working class, when it came to the American Civil War, what, what can be called, I think, uh, the Second American Revolution um, and the question of slavery, um, which the Marxists had been raising uh, from the beginning, both in America and without America, the working class movement in Britain organized against the British government that wanted to ally itself with the South. And of course, what you had is the South was uh, um, linked in uh, with the British economy, uh, with Lancashire, with the cotton mills, mass working class, a militant uh, working class, and the working class in Lancashire boycotted and supported the freeing of black slaves, even though it cost them. And to me, that's a model of um, internationalism. So to me, um, you know, decrying BDS, it is the equivalent of scabbing. And uh, uh, I was surprised um, by what Dan said. Now, um, I, I sort of got a vague idea of um, Dan's, uh, Daniel's uh, political background. Um, I have to confess that I um, initially suggested the article. So, you know, I, I take my own share of the blame. 
Uh, but okay, we'll debate the question out. And um, hopefully we've got some letters and hopefully we've got some articles or at least an article um, on the question. But I just wanted to make my uh, particular position clear and the position um, of uh, the PCC clear that we don't view this as a, um, uh, a debate uh, that we consider um, a healthy one. Uh, you have to debate all sorts of issues, uh, but we don't uh, view this as, um, how should you put it, a, a minor uh, question. We view it as um, pretty fundamental and therefore precisely we would uh, call for the expulsion uh, from the DSA of uh, people who broke uh, the um, boycott, um, which the DSA quite rightly called for of uh, Israel and um, disinvestment from Israel and America shouldn't support Israel. America shouldn't support Israel. Britain shouldn't support Israel. And uh, it is special. And we shouldn't excuse, excuse ourselves for saying it's special. That's it.